I'm James Chow, and if you're joining us for the first time or returning listener, thank you for being here. This podcast has taken a break this year as we shifted our focus to COVID-19. I hope you and your family and all the people around you are safe and well. But we come back with a really great guest this week who I spoke to at the start of the pandemic. In February 2020, I reached out to Kishore Mabubani, the diplomat and author of the new release, Has China Won? A question he puts to his book and in his words, explores the Chinese challenge to American primacy. That conversation is a few months old, but I think the issues it addresses are more important now than at the time of the recording in a geopolitical landscape that's been reshaped by COVID-19 and its associated dimensions, be they economic or social. And of course, with a recent US election in mind, this interview, taped well before then, provides a fresh look at the new challenges. Before he began writing books, Kishore Mabubani served as Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations, during which time he was president of the UN Security Council. He was also founding dean at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. I began our conversation by asking him about his book and why it's called Has China Won? It's designed to help uh, prevent a worst-case outcome in the U.S.-China relationship, where there's a complete split between U.S. and China, which I think will be disastrous for the U.S. and disastrous for China too. But unfortunately, uh, many people in the United States have uh, launched a geopolitical contest in China against China without thinking through the long-term consequences of doing so. So I'm basically I'm saying stop. Think twice. Think where you have common interests before you go right ahead and assume that you can just defeat China as easily as you defeated Soviet Union. Because China is not the Soviet Union. What does that mean? I did an interview with an American military general recently, and he said, mm. you know, China's not Russia. Mm. And he inserted that uh, at a certain point in the conversation, which took me back and he went on to explain that uh, China's not trying to export an ideology, it's mm. just trying to work with the world sometimes on its own terms, but it's not necessarily anything more than that. Do people tend to think the worst of China? Where does that come from? Well, I think the, uh, if you look, if you read my book, you'll find that uh, it's actually quite surprising that the United States of America, which has the best funded strategic think tanks in the world, has some of the worst strategic thinking <laughs> in the world. And I often wonder where the money is going in all these strategic think tanks, because the, there's, there's a clear void of strategic thinking in America. And the man who actually gave me this insight, and he told me that uh, America has made a major fundamental mistake in launching this strategic contest, global contest against China, without thinking through a comprehensive long-term strategy first, was Henry Kissinger. And he allowed me to quote him in the book, and I quote him in the book, you know. So uh, once again, 
the goal of my book is to just get Americans to think very hard about where their real interests lie. So give, let me give you a concrete example. Is the primary goal of the US government to improve the well-being of the 330 million American people? Or is the primary goal of the US government to preserve the primacy of the United States in the global geopolitical system? Now, these are very different goals. So if your goal, if your goal is to preserve the primacy, the price you are paying is that the well-being of the American people is being undermined. Well, for example, one of the most shocking statistics uh, in America is that what, almost two-thirds of American families, households, don't have $500 in emergency cash at a time when the United States has wasted $3 trillion fighting a war in Iraq that was completely unnecessary. Why don't you take the $3 trillion and instead of fighting a war in Iraq, give it to American households who need it much more than a war in Iraq uh, is needed. So these are the examples of how America is going against its own interests in many of its global geopolitical policies. You begin your chapter, A More Dangerous World, by referencing your global friends, Latin American, Asian, African, saying that they will be troubled by your call to the West to be cunning. And mm. you have described yourself uh, at the end of your talks as a friend of the West, um, mm. but as a friend of the world as well. What would you advise China? China has an aging society. It has an economy that's still growing very fast, but slowing in that growth at the same time. What would you say when you meet its leaders and sit across from them? Well, you know, if you look at my forthcoming book, uh, Has China Won? In the introductory chapter, uh, I have a fictional letter from, to, to President Xi Jinping from one of his Politburo colleagues saying, Dear Comrade Xi, we have now embarked on a great geopolitical contest with the United States. Of course, we will win. But let us not underestimate the United States. These are the great strengths of the United States. And I spell out all the big strengths of the United States. So my big advice to China uh, is to, is the same advice I give to America. Don't be overconfident. Don't assume you're going to win. Because the United States is a formidable country. And the population may be one quarter the size of China, but if China can tap the best brains from 1.4 billion people, the United States can tap the best brains from 6 billion people. So if you look at the CEOs of the major corporations in Silicon Valley and all that, you have lots of Indians uh, who are running Google, who are running Microsoft, and you don't find a single non-Chinese running a major uh, Chinese corporation in China. So that's why it's a mistake to underestimate uh, the United States. And so my goal is to urge caution to both China and the US, be careful in what you're undertaking. You talk about America getting distracted 
by, for example, the end of the Cold War and the events around 9-11, what are the potential distraction points for China? Well, I think uh, in the case of China, I think the primary challenges will be domestic and not external. Because clearly, as you produce the world's largest middle class, which is what China is going to have, if it already hasn't had yet, then clearly it's a population that has a higher state of expectations from the government. They expect more. And so just because the Chinese government has been extraordinarily successful especially since the four modernizations uh, 40 years ago that uh, Deng Xiaoping launched, it doesn't mean that the same formulas can work in the next 40 years. So clearly, developing new institutions that meet the new aspirations of the new Chinese middle class is going to be a big challenge. And I think the Chinese leaders are aware of this. And they should, that is what, that's what I think they want to concentrate on. And that's also why China is trying to avoid this geopolitical contest with the United States because it wants to focus on what it has to do at home. Because China is, even despite its remarkable success, is still not yet a developed country. Do you think it will act on that self-awareness? Do you think it has the capacity? And do you think it has the opportunity to do that? Well, I think the uh, there was a time uh, I discussed this in my book, in the early 2010s, and especially after the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, uh, where a certain degree of complacency and, to some extent, smugness and arrogance uh, was creeping into uh, attitudes of China uh, towards the rest of the world. So I think in that sense, uh, when the United States launched this geopolitical contest against China, it has been a kind of a wake-up call for China. And in some ways, the United States may have done China a big favor, for example, by launching this trade war against China because it made China aware, hey, we're now embarking on another big struggle and we have to get ready for it. And China will have to make, and the Chinese people will have to make significant sacrifices. In your book cover on the jacket of Has the West Lost It, there was a marvellous uh, couple of lines from Fareed Zakaria, who says, we should all think of it as the cold shower that is urgently needed to revive the West. We're speaking in February, still a few weeks from the launch of your forthcoming book, Has mm -hmm. China Won? And all I can glean from the pre-order site is that it talks about this geopolitical context and whether necessarily that is a foregone conclusion. You have told us that it begins with a marvelous fictional letter written by someone in China to the president of China at this time, President Xi Jinping. What else can we look forward to? And what are the takeaways that you offer to your readers? Well, I think, you know, there is... Um for the Western readers, uh, especially the liberal Western intellectuals, uh, have developed a one-dimensional view of China, and which is very black and white, you know, black and white. So, for example, the fact that China is run by Chinese Communist Party, right, which it is, 
they assume that, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party therefore will behave exactly like the Soviet Communist Party. But the Chinese Communist Party is in many ways behaving like the exact opposite of the Soviet Communist Party. Right? It's opening up the Chinese economy, allowing 100 or a million Chinese people to travel overseas. The Soviet Union never allowed people to do that. So it's a very different thing. So what I try to provide is a three-dimensional view uh, of China for the American uh, and Western uh, intellectuals. And I hope that they will then step back and see that this is a China that they can live with and work with instead of just condemning and denouncing it. When was the first time you visited China and what did China feel like in those years? Well, I first visited China, Beijing, in 1980, exactly 40 years ago. And when I arrived in Beijing, there were no skyscrapers. There were big highways, but no cars, only bicycles. And since I was staying in a guest house not far from Tiananmen, uh, I would go jogging down the little lanes, the hutongs as they call them, and people would be out on the muddy streets with little pails of water, brushing their teeth out in the main street. And it was like a rustic uh, rural uh, environment right in the heart of Beijing, right? So, and people there couldn't choose what to wear. They all wore Maoist suits. The ladies didn't have colorful dresses. So it was in many ways the exact opposite of what you see in Beijing today. So I have actually personally seen and experienced this dramatic transformation of China. That's why I can speak with great confidence of how far China has come in transforming its society. Could you have possibly foreseen in 1980 that in 2020 we would speaking we would be speaking about China as a global economic force or that you would even be writing a book about China in 2020? Uh, absolutely not. I mean there was uh, China was still so far behind uh, the rest of the world I mean in economic terms and uh, no one could have dreamt uh, I mean in, in 1980 by the way uh, in PPP terms purchasing power parity terms China's GNP was only 10% of the United States, 10%. In 2014, 34 years later, China's GNP became bigger. Uh, so that's amazing. That, that's one of the most amazing transformations in world history. And I think we still don't understand how it happened so fast, why it happened so fast. I think future historians will be able to see it. But all we, all we, we can see and experience it but we cannot understand it in a way that future historians can understand. I wouldn't ask you to generalize Singapore's population or character uh, of mm. it, many millions of people, let alone a country of 1.4 billion people. But based on your interactions, and some of them obviously at very high level, unique interactions, how would you characterize the Chinese people today if you were to speak to your American friends or even to your Singaporean friends and they say what are the Chinese people like mm. not as politicians but as 
ordinary people, what do you say? Well, I mean, I, I can I can tell you. See, I, I joined the uh, Singapore Foreign Service in 1971. That's now like 49 years ago. And I used to interact with Chinese diplomats. And I, I must say, I tried to avoid Chinese diplomats in the 70s because they would carry Mao's little red book in their pocket and often recite to you slogans that they were taught to recite to you. And you couldn't have a polished, sophisticated conversation on the state of the world. You only got slogans. So I would love to talk to American diplomats who would read the New Yorker and give you this very sophisticated, subtle feel of the state of the world. Now you fast forward 49 years. Today, if you give me a choice, do I want to talk to an American diplomat or a Chinese diplomat? I would just as happily speak to a Chinese diplomat because he'd probably speak more languages than the American diplomat. He would know the history of a country better than the American diplomat. And he'd be able to give you a very subtle, sophisticated understanding uh, of a country. So you can see how China, even just in its diplomacy, has changed dramatically in the last 49 years. Mr. Mabubani, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Subscribe to At Large China US Focus on your preferred podcast platform. I'm James Chow. Thanks very much for listening and we'll speak again soon.